You're listening to a Women's History Association of Ireland podcast. In this podcast, a paper from Besieged Bodies, Gendered Violence, Sexualities and Motherhood, the Women's History Association of Ireland's annual conference for 2020-2021. This online conference took place on four Fridays in March 2021 and was supported by the UCD Decade of Centenaries Fund, the UCD School of History, the UCD School of Gender Studies, UCD Centre for Gender Feminisms and Sexualities and the UCD College of Arts and Humanities Fund. This podcast is produced in association with History Hub. To listen to other papers and conference keynotes, go to historyhub.ie. The WHAI conference was organised by Dr Mary McAuliffe from UCD Gender Studies and Dr Fanula Walsh from UCD School of History. This podcast features a paper from Women as Revolutionaries, which was a UCD Decade of Centenaries funded panel. The third paper in the panel was given by Dr. Jerry O'Neill from DCU. The paper was entitled Sex for Secrets, the IRA's Honey Trap Operation, 1920-1921. The panel was chaired by Dr. Fanula Walsh from UCD. So our next speaker is um, Jerry O'Neill. Um, Jerry, Dr. Jerry O'Neill recently completed her PhD thesis um, in DCU School of History and Geography, uh, which has the title Private Lives and Public Personas, Female Participation in the IRA During the Ireland's War of Independence. She teaches two history modules for DCU's Open Education Unit, and she's currently researching the origins and the activities of the Citizens' Defence Force during the Civil War in 1922 to 1923. This morning, she's talking to us in a paper titled Sex for Secrets, the IRA's Honey Trap Operation, 1920-1921. Good morning, everybody. Um... Thank you very much to Finola and Mary for giving me the opportunity to talk about this here. It's much appreciated. Um, I know we've all been going through particular challenges with the, the lack of archives, etc. And it has been difficult for us to research for papers. So while I'm doing a quick thank you, um, I would like to, to give a shout out to the curator or the curator, as I'm not sure, of a website called theauxiliaries.com because I managed to glean a lot of information um, about the auxiliaries and an individual within there, thanks to that website. So it has um, it has been a great benefit to me, as I said, with the closure of the archives. Um, first of all, I'm going to talk about um, a woman called um, Susie Cool or Susie Goddard was her ma- marriage name, and her husband. And the Irish press reported in um, August 1955 that Mrs. Susie Goddard who is an intelligence agent for Michael Collins in the Black and Tan days, as they put it, had returned to Ireland for a holiday after an absence of 28 years. Accompanied by her husband, Mr. H.G. Goddard, she gave an interview to the Irish press reporter about her activities with IRA intelligence during the Irish War of Independence. And as startling as some of these revelations were, and I'll quote, she cultivated the acquaintance of British intelligence officers and gained vital information for IRA headquarters. But Goddard was not only economical with the truth, but as we will demonstrate over the course of the next 15 or 20 minutes, this interview greatly glossed over the extent of her um, activities for the IRA. Now, that's just a a picture of... um, Harry Goddard and Susie in 1955. Now, Susie was born Susie Poole, or Susan Poole, the youngest of a family of four children, born to John Poole, 
Catholic RIC head constable and his wife, Susan. The family was living in the, um, the RIC barracks on Main Street in Banagher County, Offaly, then Kings County at the time of the 1901 census. But by 1911, John Poole had retired from the RIC and was sub-postmaster in Ballinacarrigy in County Westmeath. Young Susie wasn't at home on the night of the 1911 census, but the witness statement of uh, Michael Murray, whom we'll talk about in a little moment, he was a captain in the IRA's Ballinacarrigy company. He recalls that she was sent to a finishing school in some convent, which may explain her absence. Murray recalls that she ran away from the convent, um, but Susie is described in almost everybody's witness statements or by anybody who recalled her as a beautiful young girl. Uh, she had a lovely head of blonde hair, says Michael Murray, and a Venus-like figure. She had a very charming manner and an ability to dress to perfection. And of course, this drew the attention of most of the young men, certainly around the Ballinacarrigy area. But Susie had theatrical ambitions. And after a short stay with her family in County Westmeath, she moved to Dublin. Um, now, again, she found a, a position with um, a theatre company in Dublin and worked on the stage there. But after a while, uh, moved on to London, where she got a job as what they describe as a chorus girl. Murray states that she was very much in demand there and was much sought after by the men who frequent, frequent the stage doors. I think they call them stage door Johnnies um, after shows. And there were always a big percentage of British officers among these people. Now, one of those officers whose acquaintance she made um, was Harry Gerard Gordon Goddard who um, she ended up marrying him in January 1920 uh, in St. Joseph's Church on Berkeley Road in Dublin. Um, the marriage certificate shows that they were both living at an address at 56 Eccles Street at the time. But Goddard returned to his military career following their marriage. He was posted overseas, although it's important for the narrative of this story to understand he came back to Ireland when he was on leave regularly. But he was posted overseas initially, and she then spent most of her time in Ballinacarrigy. Now, marriage had not diminished, diminished um, Susie's charms in any way, according to, to all the records. Um, she regularly entertained British officers from the garrison in Mullingar in the family home, Ballinacarrigy House. Her childhood friends, Michael Murray, and James Maguire were both active members of the IRA, and they were also frequent visitors to Ballinacarrigy House. Um, consequently, both Murray and Maguire became acquainted with um, a Captain Wallace, who was the adjutant in Mullingar Barracks, and Captain Money, who was the intelligence officer there. So um, mixing with these people, um, this turned out to be an excellent opportunity for the IRA to try and glean some information about the British forces in Mullingar and what they were up to. Um, so they very quickly realised that Susie Goddard would be a very important conduit for that type of information. But Susie Goddard herself provided the circumstances um, by which this could be achieved because um, in his witness, witness statement, Maguire quite bluntly states that Susie wanted to get her husband shot and she wanted the IRA to do it. 
and she was willing to do anything that she could in return for this favour. Um, as a gesture of goodwill then at this point, Susie Goddard began to supply information to Murray and to Maguire about impending military raids and searches and about any planned roundup of IRA suspects. The information she supplied came directly from the military in Mullingar. So it covered a broad area of West Meath, as you can see on this map here, um, including Delvin, Tyrrell's Pass, Castle Pollard and Kinnegad. In return, Susie asked that the IRA guarantee the safety of Wallace. She was romantically involved with Wallace at this time, and that's confirmed in both Maguire's and Murray's um, statements. So she requests that they ensure that he's safe, that nothing will happen to him, and also requested the safety of the intelligence officer, Captain Money. Well, Murray reported that he gave his word to Susie that as far as possible, he would ensure that these men would be unharmed. However, neither Maguire nor Murray was in a position to have her husband summarily executed. This was a proposal that would have to go far higher up the, um, the chain of command. So posing as an insurance agent, Harry Conroy, who was the IRA's intelligence officer with the Mullingar Brigade, came to Ballinacarrigy to meet with Susie Goddard. Now, two other individuals, James Hines and John Doc Dockery, um, have left statements pointing out that Conroy was the acting divisional intelligence officer at this point and that he reported directly into Michael Collins. Documents from the Collins papers in the Irish military archives actually support that. Um, well, Murray says that Conroy went to IRA GHQ in Dublin with a report on Susie Goddard after meeting her. Shortly after that, Murray himself was summoned to Dublin to meet with Michael Collins and was closely questioned by both Collins and Gerald O'Sullivan about Susie. Well, having received confirmation, if you like, or assurances that Murray, now none of the IRA in Mullingar or in Ballinacarrigy, had compromised themselves in any way, Collins asked then that Susie be brought to Dublin to meet him. No further uh, mention was made at all in any of the records that I have located to date about what happened to the proposed um, execution of her husband. Now, both Murray's and Maguire's statements are remarkably consistent in their assertion that Susie Goddard impressed Colin so much that he effectively arranged accommodation for her on Dublin's Whitwood Road, where she could entertain high-ranking army and police officers of the British forces. Maguire is more succinct in his statement. He simply states that arrangements were made um, to accommodate Susie in this flat. Neither man, of course, specifies what the entertaining involved. But while there's no evidence at any point here that sexual services were traded, there is um, a curtain is effectively drawn over Susie's activities at this point, but it is implicit that she was chosen because of her charm, because of her beauty and because of her love of adventure. Furthermore, Collins himself, according to Maguire, was introduced to several British officers in Susie's flat on the Whitwood Road as Goddard's lover. Um, so this further implies that Susie Goddard was not averse to a close relationship with, uh, with gentlemen friends. Now, while it's patently clear that Goddard was actively working on behalf of IRA intelligence and was doing so at the behest of the director of intelligence himself, Michael Collins, 
There is ample evidence to suggest that her estranged husband, Harry Goddard, may also have been recruited. Murray states that Susie Goddard confided in him that Collins encouraged her, and I quote, to get her husband to come over here and join the Oxys. He presumed that the purpose of this would be to have the husband working alongside IRA intelligence on the inside, if you like. Now, while there is absolutely no proof of this again, all the circumstantial evidence adds up. Um, there's circumstantial evidence to prove it may have been indeed the case that Goddard um, did start supplying information to the IRA because the records of the Auxiliary Division RIC, and again, thanks to that website with the archives closed, it's given me so much information on this. These records show that Harry Goddard joined the Auxiliaries in October 1921 during the truce, and he was immediately posted on that date to P Company, which was based in Tubbercurry, County Sligo. Now, a message from IRA GHQ to the IRA Brigade Intelligence Officer in Sligo on the 31st of October, as you can see there, discloses that information has been received that the strength of P Company Auxiliary Division stationed at Tubbercurry is 68 temporary cadets and 13 temporary constables. Now, this is from the, uh, the Collins Papers in the Irish Military Archives. This file is um, a strength return was in the hands of the IRA four days after Susie Goddard's husband joined P Company. Um, now, despite the fact that P Company had been in, in Tubbercurry since July 1921, the IRA had no information on them until it starts to trickle through four days after Goddard joins them. Um, now, documents again in the Collins papers, these are... Um, uh, letters, correspondence and uh, intelligence reports. Um, they, these show that the intelligence on the auxiliaries in Tubercurry was forwarded to IRA GHQ, not from the intelligence officer of the Sligo Brigade, but from Mullingar. At first, it may seem unusual that information, intelligence information about the, the auxiliaries in Tubercurry, County Sligo, um, was coming from Mullingar rather than Sligo, until you look closer and you see that the IO, the intelligence officer in Mullingar was Harry Conroy and he was Susie's handler effectively. And Conroy's report to the IRA GHQ on the 3rd of December um, 1921, just days before the treaty was signed, reveal that his new contact in P Company is the auxiliary intelligence officer, Albert Thompson. So yes, the intelligence officer of Auxiliary's P Company was leaking confidential information to the IRA within weeks of Goddard being posted to that unit. Now, I'm going to take you forward a few years um, before returning to Susie's activities during the War of Independence again, um, because events in the 1920s are key to understanding the nature of both of the Goddards and the complexity of their, their relationship. Now, it's clear that Susie Goddard had a very stormy on-off relationship with her husband and that she frequently spent long periods of time apart from him. But when he was demobilised from the auxiliaries in January 1922, he did what many of his fellow auxiliaries did at the time. He joined the Palestine Gendarmerie 
and was posted over there. Susie didn't accompany him, um, but the next record of her then shows up in 1928 when she was living with a Galway native called John Michael Leahy, with whom she had two children. The records show that she was arrested under the name Mrs. John Leahy from a house in St. Peter's Road in Fibsborough in Dublin on a charge of obtaining um, goods by fraud. The Connacht Tribune reported on the 29th of September 1928 that a well-dressed young woman who appeared in the dock with a baby in arms was remanded on bail, charged with having obtained goods from business houses by means of forged documents. Um, the her common law husband then, John Leahy, was also arrested and charged with her. Now, the value of the goods, which included a gramophone player and some records, um, some very high-end ladies' clothing and furs, shoes, an electric iron, an assortment of uh, items, including um, quite a large sum of money on uh, tobacco and cigarettes. Um, it was reported by the Irish Independent to be up to £400. In a sworn statement to the court, Goddard claimed that her husband was in India serving in the army. He wasn't, he was actually in Palestine, as the records show, and that she had not seen him since 1921. The Cork Examiner of the 6th of November reported that both parties received a sentence of 12 months imprisonment with hard labour, which was suspended for three years. Most of the goods had been recovered by this point from various pawn shops, and Mrs Leahy, who was uh, John Leahy's mother, had made good any shortfall. But uh, Mr Carrigan, the prosecuting counsel, described Mrs Goddard as an adventuress. Now, um, Harry Goddard was still serving in Palestine, as I said, not India, while his estranged wife Susie was under police investigation there in Ireland. But Goddard, despite his own legal difficulties, remained with the Palestinian police until his retirement from that force in 1949. Now, it hasn't been possible to ascertain um, when the couple reconciled, but in January 1935, he was by then promoted to inspector of police in Palestine. She accompanied him um, when he served, uh, when he sailed, I should say, back to Port Said after a period of leave. Um, he was acting superintendent of police when he was awarded an MBE in 1937. And the Irish Independent reported their arrival at Dunleary on the 6th of July 19. Uh, 38, which was 10 years after her police trial, or her trial for fraud rather, not the 28-year absence from Ireland that she stated in the 1955 interview. Um, this is just an extract from, uh, House of, from Hansard, the House of Commons debate on the 28th of June 1939, because Harry Goddard had come to prominence again then when questions were asked in Parliament about charges made against him in Palestine in connection with the traffic in illegal immigration. Um, he was described on, uh, on record as a corrupt police officer. But despite the evasive reply here you seek from Mr. MacDonald to Ernest Bennett's question, Goddard was not dismissed from the police force. He received a rap on the knuckles and he was bound over to keep the peace. And furthermore, um, despite all of these um, uh, allegations and proven, I mean, he was charged and he was found guilty of corruption and accepting money for, for trafficking in people. Despite all this, he retained his position within the force. Now, we'll come back to where we started and return to Susie's activities. I'll be wrapping up in the next couple of minutes. I'm sure Fanola will be pleased to hear. Um, we'll wrap up about her activities in 1920 and 1921. You see, it's not possible to ascertain exactly how Susie 
entertained these high-ranking members of the police and the military in the flat that uh, was provided for her by Michael Collins. But as you can see, it's possible to glean something of the character of Goddard and her sometimes estranged husband from the paper trail that they've left behind them. Um, Carrigan, the barrister at law, probably summed up Susie best um, when he described her as an adventuress, as an opportunist. She was someone who'd first run away from finishing school, then she ran away to become a chorus girl. Later, she solicited the IRA to murder her husband because she was having an affair with another military officer. And later again, she lived with John Leahy as his wife and bore two children for him. So Susie didn't live by the conventions of the day. Um, but then if any sexual services were exchanged in return for confidential information, and again, this is impossible to prove. There are certainly, you know, many um, indicators that it may have been the case, but it's impossible to prove. Um, it may be, and this is what I find really interesting about Susie, it may be that those transactions took place on her terms, not on the terms of the IRA. Because from her arrangement with Michael Collins, she was provided with accommodation that was appropriate enough to entertain very senior officers. And presumably she was provided with the wherewithal or the funding to do that. Um, numerous accounts describe her as beautiful, charming, well-dressed. She liked glamour, she liked intrigue and adventure. So did she see an opportunity to live this life on her terms and then take it? The pride she took um, in her adventures is evident in the newspaper report that you see here. She has a sense of glee in it. Look what I did during 1920 and 21. But as you can see, what I've demonstrated here, she's very, very economical with the truth, as in about how long she was there from Ireland. She gives the indica indication she's been with her husband all this period, where, whereas the, the um, evidence proved they had a very stormy on-off relationship, frequently more off than on. So. We know she's economical with the truth. There is very little evidence to support any argument that she was exploited by the IRA. Um, while other female intelligence workers recruited by the IRA did their work in more conventional ways, they did it in offices, in barracks, in post offices, in cafes, in hotels. Susie Goddard just took a very different approach to it, but she does not appear to have had any regrets. Um, unfortunately, with the closed closure of archives, this is as far as I've gone with this. Um, but it, I do hope to develop um, the whole story of Susie a little bit further once uh, things return to normal. So thank you for listening to me. I hope that you have found, um, you have found that interesting. And um, hopefully it's something we can talk about again sometime in the future. Thank you, everybody. Thanks for listening to this podcast. From Besieged Bodies, Gendered Violence, Sexualities and Motherhood, the Women's History Association of Ireland's Annual Conference for 2020-2021. You can listen to podcasts of keynotes and many other papers from the conference on historyhub.ie.